All right. Well, welcome those of you that are joining us online, whether you are coming on live right now or whether you're joining us later. Uh, we sincerely appreciate the fact that uh, you've decided to join our Bible study. And uh, we're going to be looking at the Bible's love chapter tonight. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's a very famous chapter in Scripture. It's very poetic, especially if you read it in uh, some of the translations. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And that is what you are going to see uh, to my right, to your, the left of your screen. And those of you that are here, that's what you're going to see up here, is 1 Corinthians 13. From the English Standard Version, and uh, here it is. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, we did an entire series on love uh, at the beginning of this year, and that is available on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Dioral, or just look up Pastor Daryl Hall and uh, Lifewell Church, and you will see that there is a playlist there that's called Love Series, and that whole series is there. Um, and I address this chapter a little bit, but tonight, because we are doing a Bible study all the way through 1 Corinthians that I've titled God's Dysfunctional People, uh, we are seeing what the Apostle Paul calls the greater gift. We concluded last week um, uh, looking at the spiritual gifts, and the Apostle Paul uh, concluded chapter 12 by saying, but earnest, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And love, of course, is the highest gift and the most excellent way. So let's look at verses one through three. I'll reread those, and then we'll delve into them a bit. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Remember, we talked about or we spoke of this gift of tongues, and chapter 14 addresses that quite a bit more. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I have gained nothing. Um, now, there is a, a difference in manuscripts there. Some manuscripts say, 
if I deliver up my body that I may boast, right? Um, the idea here, though, being self-sacrifice, and there can be a self-interested self-sacrifice. So no matter how awe-inspiring the gift that someone may have, if love doesn't motivate or accompany that gift, then it accomplishes nothing, at least for that person. Um, if you go back to the old King James Version, it translates the word love here as charity. And that should give us an understanding uh, into the nature of this type of love. This is that Greek word agape, which if you've been in a church context for any period of time, you've certainly heard that word. Uh, it is the love that is most often associated with God in the New Testament. It is a sacrificial love. It is a universal love. It is an unconditional love. And uh, it is really the basis for all love. Uh, in my series on love, I talked about the four loves, but we're going to focus on this foundational love, agape love here. Um, it's not a feeling. It's not affection or attachment to someone. It's not an overpowering emotion. It is compassionate concern, which results in a commitment to act in the best interest of another person. Let me say that again, because that's kind of a definition. It is the compassionate concern, which results in a commitment to act in the best interest of another person. So that's not an emotion, right? Uh, William Barclay writes this. Some may practice charity. They may distribute their goods to the poor. There's nothing more humiliating than this so-called charity without love. To give as a grim duty, to give with a certain contempt, to take the moral high ground and throw scraps of charity to the dog, to give and to accompany the giving with a smug moral lecture or a crushing rebuke is not charity at all. It is pride, and pride is always cruel, for it knows no love. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses. It's not enough just to give, to be sacrificial. Um, love does involve sacrifice, but it is not merely sacrifice, as if sacrifice could be mere something, right? But people may sacrifice on the basis of something other than love. For instance, pride. Now, Going back to spiritual gifts, since that's what chapter 12 was about, people may want spiritual gifts as a way of exalting themselves to impress other people. People may want spiritual gifts to prove to themselves or to others that they have a special relationship with God. People may want spiritual gifts for their own comfort or pleasure uh, as a means of feeling the Holy Spirit. I think that that's uh, where some people are motivated, at least when it concerns certain spiritual gifts. Uh, people may sacrifice everything for what they believe. They, you know, even giving up their own lives. But this doesn't mean that they're expressing love. In fact, it may be the most ostentatious and extreme form of pride or selfishness. Let's go back to the time uh, when I was originally preparing this Bible study. It was during that time when uh, we were experiencing a lot of terrorism from ISIS. You remember this? 2014, 2015. And uh, all during this terrorist period, and this is not to say that terrorism is not still going on, but all during this terrorist period, there were plenty of suicide bombers. Let's go all the way back to 911. We have these, uh, these fellows that are taking control of jets and flying them into buildings. Well, obviously, they're going to die, right? So that is human sacrifice, and they're doing that because they think that somehow 
it will give them a place in heaven. Um, it gives them some sort of a special, uh, I guess, uh, proud, glorious death. But the reality is it's not based on love and it is not something that God wanted, certainly. And so it is less than worthless. It is uh, something that is destructive. But, you know, let's think about Christian martyrs. Just because someone gives their life for God or for Jesus doesn't mean that they're doing that on the basis of love. Um, love means that I put God above all others and I want to act in his best interest. And as I said, when we were going through our love series, uh, Jesus said, here's how you act in my best interest. Do what I say. If you love me, obey my commandments. And so um, you know, there was the temptation that Jesus was offered by the devil to leap off the pinnacle of the temple to sort of prove himself, to prove that he was the son of God by calling upon the angels to save him and so forth. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, no, that's not what we do. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. Um, Satan even misquoted a verse of scripture there from Psalm 91. He said he will give his angels charge concerning you and they will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Satan left out a very important uh, uh, phrase there. The actual verse says, um, uh, God will give his angels charge over you to watch over you in all of your ways and they will bear you up in their hands as you strike your foot against the stone. So here is the, uh, the missing part, is that idea of presumption. I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to assume or presume, I should say, that God is going to save me, rather than obeying God, which would be loving God, right? So um, that's what we're looking to do. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... Um, Okay, so William Barclay, once again, said a characteristic of Gentile worship, especially the worship of the Greek god of wine, Dionysius, and of the goddess Sibylle, was the clanging of cymbals and the blaring of trumpets. Even the coveted gift of tongues was no better than the uproar of Gentile worship if love was absent. And so I've observed in various church contexts that there can be a certain striving there, a striving to, uh, to, to feel this, uh, this strong and powerful emotion, a striving to enter into the kingdom or enter into worship. And there is that, that strife that takes hold. And so there is the lack of peace that you would find with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's certainly a lack of love there because when I'm striving and pressing in and, and my flesh is taking the four, then what I'm doing is I am putting myself in front of everyone. And I am uh, uh, really being ostentatious. I am I am, I am projecting myself rather than projecting God for worship, right? Well, the word for tongues here, as we observed when we talked about this gift, uh, may be translated languages. The point being, whether you're a polyglot educated to teach or translate the Bible for those who have never heard the gospel, or you're a spirit-filled, supernatural, tongue-speaking Christian, if what you do is not motivated by love, then you're just making a bunch of noise, right? You're just making prideful noise. There may be those who go far into a faraway country on mission because it is intriguing or exotic. I, I think that happens with young people a good bit, that uh, 
they're just, they just want to go on a trip, right? So, you know, we have mission trips in church oftentimes. And, you know, people may be just intrigued with the idea of going on a mission trip. They just want to go to a foreign country and they want to experience that. And so there's really not anything related to love there at all. In fact, it is questionable whether they are responding to a calling from God at all. I remember some years ago I was watching um, a Christian television channel and there were some young men who uh, took their little cameras I think this was before the, the cell phone camera era had become so popular and, and our, the cameras on our phones are phenomenal now. But they took these cameras and they were just going to go and, you know, go to all of these different uh, places and, and, you know, preach the gospel. Well, okay, they hadn't prepared. They didn't speak the language. They ended up stumbling over themselves most of the time. Um, I think the gospel certainly uh, needs to be preached throughout the world. That's what Jesus said, right? That's the Great Commission. Uh, as Pastor Craig was mentioning to his uh, Bible study in this very room on Sunday, the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Uh, as you go, then you're going to make disciples, uh, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the, name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always to the end of the world. But I have to respond to that calling from God to go where he has called me to go. So the Apostle Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the Corinthian church. It's deep in Gentile territory, right? It's, uh, it's uh, in, in the, the Greek-speaking world, and the Apostle Paul has made it, had made his way all the way over to that part of the world, and this is the second missionary journey. But, you know, it was years between the time the Apostle Paul was struck down on the Damascus Road by this light from God and blinded and called to preach the gospel. It was years between that time and the time that he actually went out in response to that call. And the result of him doing that, excuse me, not the result, uh, the, what initiated him doing that was that the church had prophets who were recognized and they were fasting and they received this word from the Lord that it was time to send Paul out. And he was going to go with his companion uh, Barnabas. And, uh, you know, that shows us that although there is this need that is, that is present in the world to preach the gospel, and we may have a heart of compassion, we still need to be obedient to the Lord. That's how I'm going to show him love. I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm not going to run out ahead of the Lord and do what I want to do, because once again, my, mes my message becomes confused. Is my message to preach the gospel, or is my message to to put myself out there as a, as a preacher of the gospel. Do I want to be up on stage? Do I want to be seen by people? Is that why I'm doing this? Do I want to go to a foreign country and, and be loved by uh, people that are, are uh, exotic and different and interesting? Or do I really want to preach the gospel to people who need to hear it, right? He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, well, I may be a gifted speaker drawing thousands to my meetings. Obviously, I'm not. I may be a brilliant author who sells millions of copies of my book. I may be an insightful counselor or a wise leader, but without love, I'm nothing in the end. Even if those speeches and those books and those counseling sessions have benefited other people, it's not going to benefit me because it wasn't based on love, right? So, what this passage is telling us is that the motive for every action in my life must be love. 
love for God and love for people. And again, love is looking out for the best interest of the other person. Self doesn't factor into the love equation. Selfishness is in antipathy to love. If I am seeking to do God's will and keep Christ's commandment because he is the most important person in my life, in the world, in the universe, I want to honor him. I want to praise him. I want to thank him. My love for God supersedes everything and everyone else. I love God because he loved me first. And you can find that exact phrase in 1 John 4, 19. I don't have to worry about loving myself when I receive God's love for me. Listen to that again. You don't have to worry about loving yourself if you'll simply allow God to love you. And then he transforms you into a lover of other people. Um, I'm seeking to love others primarily as an act of love for Christ who commanded it. Now, I think that's important because you can wear yourself out serving other people. You, you know, you can be a missionary, you can be a servant, and you can have this desire to help people, maybe have the gift of helps. But, uh, you, you know, you can wear yourself very, very thin uh, and even burn out trying to do and do and do for other people. Um, I have seen this again and again in church contexts. I've seen some wonderful, wonderful people who have given and given and given and served and served and served until they just don't have anything left and they're tired. And so once again, we're doing this. We're motivated by our love for Christ and we're going to rely on him to help us to understand when we need to reel it in. Um, when I need to say, uh, you know what, I can't say yes to everybody and everything. I can't give money to every single cause. I can't help in every single situation. I'm going to focus on these areas that God has called me to, and that's what I'm going to do when I love. Now, this is interesting. When I, uh, last time I um, studied this and I put these notes together, I had just read a book by J.K. Rowling titled The Casual Vacancy. Now, I can't it's, it's well-written, it's J.K. Rowling, but um, I can't necessarily recommend it because it's, honestly, it's kind of depressing. But I'm gonna relate it to you because the story is full of self-centered, loveless people, and I think it illustrates in the negative what we need to be. We need to be loving people because there's too much of this in the world. At the climax of the novel, Crystal, a teenage girl from a poor neighborhood, takes her three-year-old brother from their sparse home because the toddler may have been molested by a drug dealer who supplies the mom with heroin. Crystal boards a bus, boards a bus with her little brother, not to take him to safety, but to hook up with a teenage boy nicknamed Fats. In a nicer neighborhood, and he lives in a nicer neighborhood, her plan is to get pregnant by this boy. Crystal and Fats meet up and look for a private place. Desperately, Crystal chooses a spot in the bushes beside a river. She hands her little brother uh, some Rolos and instructs him to stay on a little bench nearby. Not surprisingly, while Crystal and Fats are having sex in the bushes, the boy wanders away. Several adults who are major characters in the story see the boy walking alone and turn away, each absorbed in their own personal drama. The small child ends up in the river. A troubled teenage girl named uh, Suckvinder, I know that's a weird name, but I didn't make it up, jumps in to save the boy, but it is too late. In the end, Crystal goes back home and commits suicide by injecting herself with an overdose of her mother's heroin. Two children are dead, and many could have, been, and many could have saved them, but no one cared enough to disengage from their personal lives to reach out. So 
this reminds us of the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember this story? Okay. Uh, the Samaritan is waylaid by the side of the road and the priest and the Levite just pass, pass on the other side of the road. They don't want to get involved. Nope, don't want to get involved. But finally, uh, a, uh, actually, it wasn't a Samaritan that got waylaid. It was just a man, it says, that got waylaid, uh, presumably a Jewish man. It was a Samaritan who, uh, this would have been someone despised by the uh, Jewish people at that time, that stopped to help the man, that took him to an inn and offered to pay for him to stay there and so forth. That's love, right? We don't know what the Samaritan felt, but we see what the Samaritan did. And that's the type of people we need to be. Love must be the basis for all of our relationships and love is acting in the best interest of another person. So in the next section, the unselfish nature of love is seen in the attitudes it displays and in the attitudes it eschews. We'll also see that love is inherently ethical. Therefore, to act in an immoral or an amoral way for the benefit of another is not really love. Finally, we shall see that the commandment of love is unaffected by challenges or even time. So let's read the next several verses. This is verses four through seven. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Wow, I just must be without love too often. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So verses four and five reinforce the unselfish nature of love. Love is patient and kind. Um, they, they, these things are all in a package, right? They're the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love first, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when I have the Holy Spirit, I have the nature of love. And when I have the nature of love, I also have patience and I also have kindness. That doesn't mean that I don't need to train myself to act in a kind way. That doesn't mean I don't need to work on patience. It just means that it is going to come uh, more naturally, or should I say supernaturally, when I allow the Holy Spirit to fill me up. So if I begin to help someone, but become impatient with them, I may not be acting from the proper motive, from love. If I give up on someone because of an offense or because I become tired of helping them, then love was not my motive after all. And I'm, you know, pointing three fingers back at me here. That's why I said me. I can remember years and years ago, um, I was a youth minister at a church not too far from here. And I used to take teenagers skiing every year. Uh, we started by going to New Mexico and then we pretty much landed in Colorado um, the, the skiing is pretty typically uh, somewhat better there um, because the, the weather is more predictable. The snow is drier. You, you have more powder there and so forth. And uh, I can remember we went to Breckenridge, Colorado that year, and I had a young lady with me who was very, very tall for her age. And um, she was... Uh, you know, she was a teenage girl, so just like teenagers, she was working through that, uh, that kind of very, very uh, period where they're having a hard time kind of just dealing with their own limbs. Um, there's, uh, 
there's just a lack of coordination and sometimes there's a lack of strength. There's been a sudden growth spurt and this can happen with teenage boys or teenage girls. And, and there's an inability to kind of handle all of that. And so uh, she had a, an incredibly difficult time skiing. And uh, I knew that I was a youth minister and I wanted to ski back then. I mean, I really, you know, I wanted to get out there and ski and go. And I wanted to get up there with uh, the young people that were more capable of skiing and just, you know, rip around on the slope. But I, you know, felt very strongly that what I needed to do was make sure that I stayed. You know what? I was thinking this was. Yeah, this is a church nearby here. And so this young lady is having a very hard time. We're on the, the easiest run possible. It's a green run. And she would literally go three feet and then fall. And she could not get up. She could not get up. So there's a way that you, you, know, you teach skiers to use their poles and use leverage on their skis and push them. So, and she couldn't get up. And so we literally spent all morning long going down this green run, all morning long going down this green run. And I'm afraid that I expressed far too much frustration. It was usually cloaked in humor. Um, and to this day, this young lady is on my Facebook and she remembers that. And if you happen to watch this, I am very sorry for being an impatient young man um, because I should have been more understanding. Now, contrast that with a, uh, a man that used to help me uh, once again in youth ministry. And this was some years ago. This we're still taking young people skiing. And he would always come at the very back of all of the skiers to make sure that he could catch any stragglers and help anybody that needed help. And he never complained, never whined and moaned about it, never joked about it. That was just the thing that he did. He did what love demands, right? That we are willing to be patient and we're willing to be kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So let's look at these. Envy comes from a selfish sense that I do not have something that someone else has. This could be a material thing. So envy is related to covetousness, this, this word that is used in uh, the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet, right? I I want something that someone else has. It doesn't mean I want something like that, that I'm letting someone else motivate me to go out and earn the money to buy something like that. Or someone else has a certain gift. Maybe uh, they play the guitar well or the piano well or they sing well. And that can be a motivation for me to go out and, and practice and learn how to play the guitar. That's not envy. That's, that's not covetousness. Covetousness and envy means that I want what they have. And this can result in all sorts of other destructive behavior. Um, I Oftentimes envy and jealousy are seen as synonyms, but I think jealousy is a little bit different. Okay, Envy is I want what someone else has. Not something like it. I want what they, I want their gift I, I want to enter into their life somehow and, and pull that into me. And maybe I am also jealous that they have that. But jealousy means I don't think they should have that, right? You should not have that. Envy is I wish I had one of those and I want yours. Jealousy is you shouldn't have that, right? So one is the negative and one is the positive, at least in my estimation. 
Boasting, of course, is being proud of who I am or what I have. In many cases today, boasting is used as a kind of a type of persuasion. The example that comes to mind is the boxer who boasts about his victory before the bout. Muhammad Ali used to say, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. Most of the time he proved it. However, boasting may be a type of intimidation intended to demoralize the opponent. It should be seen as an embarrassment when an athlete boasts and then loses. Um, I I watched a UFC match when I was uh, doing these notes originally. This is some years ago, I think 2014 perhaps. Um, There was a match between Shale Sonnen and Anderson Silva. Sonnen went so far as to make racist comments about Silva. He was soundly defeated. Silva was even gracious enough to invite Sonnen over to his house for a barbecue. There's a proverb that says, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom and humility comes before honor. I sincerely appreciate athletes that are uh, amazing athletes and yet retain a degree of humility. Now, the athlete that I'm about to mention uh, probably doesn't strike you as being humble, but uh, there has been for the last several years this argument about who the GOAT is in basketball. And you're just like, the GOAT? What are you talking about? The greatest of all time, right? So who's the greatest of all time? Well, Maybe it was a year ago, could be two years ago, I can't remember. Um, LeBron James just came out and said, I'm the greatest of all time. Well, many people would dispute that and say, no, Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. But the interesting thing is, Michael Jordan was a fierce competitor and certainly had a great deal of pride. But he never said, I am the greatest of all time. Other people have pointed to him as that. But he has never said. Now, I did see a video of him uh, with six rings on his fingers. That's six championship rings, right? Talking about these different championships and what that meant and allowing people to make their comparison to LeBron James. Um, But there's a proverb that says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, right? That's... Too much self-promotion in the world today. That's boasting. Arrogance comes from an overinflated sense of self. Self-esteem really can be too high. I think we often see that today. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, there was uh, a lot of discussion about low self-esteem. We seem to have a lot of high self-esteem today. That's more of a problem, uh, and that's arrogance. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. In fact, this is Romans chapter 12, right before he discusses spiritual gifts in that chapter. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Now, there can be a false humility as well. Somebody that doesn't want to boast, and they don't act arrogant, but they're falsely humble. I will say what I've said many times. When someone compliments me about something, I don't just look at the ground and say, oh, no, I'm nothing. It was nothing. I say, thank you very much and praise the Lord because the Lord's given me that gift. And if it's been a blessing to you, then thank you for for telling me that and encouraging me with that word because it is encouraging. So if someone compliments you, thank them. Don't say, oh, no, you know, that doesn't matter. No, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Be appreciative of the compliment. You're, you're not being arrogant by saying, well, that's, you know, you're, you're, you're a good teacher. You, you dress well. You sing well, whatever. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Be appreciative. And then praise the Lord. Because who gave you the gift? Right? You may have worked hard. Um, 
you know, the basketball players that I just mentioned, they're, they're hard workers. They go out there and work hard. Uh, the uh, champion for the Dallas Mavericks, Dirk Nowitzki, just recently retired. I think last season he retired. But Dirk Nowitzki was known as a very, very hard worker. He's very talented. He's seven feet tall. But he didn't just rest on his laurels. He was out there practicing before people got there and staying after other people had left. So it's not enough just to have talent. There, there needs to be a work ethic there as well, okay? Um, there can be a tendency to just rely on your giftedness and not want to do anything about it and just be a big talker, right? He talks about being rude and insisting on your own way. Rudeness is simply a lack of consideration for others, and we see a lot of this today. It points clearly to a self-centered personality. Rudeness abounds in our society today. It is the result of entitlement, a sense that I deserve to have it all. How many commercials have we heard? You deserve it all, right? Um, it's a belief that I have rights or privileges that I think everyone else should observe. I will become rude when I don't get what I want. That sounds like a toddler. And it sounds like that people just didn't ever really uh, grow up from being, you know, two or three. Um, I have watched toddlers in our church act like toddlers, but they have good parents. And I've watched their parents continue to gently teach them to be unselfish. And they're turning into quite some little young people. I'm, I'm proud of our kids, most of them. <laughs> but they are, you know, and it's because their parents are teaching them. Listen, friends, we have to be taught to be unselfish. We are naturally selfish. That is original sin. And that is the opposite of love. You can't be selfish and love. Love extends out from self. Love is looking away from me. That's why self-love is not love, right? Genuine love is looking out away from me. So I'm not gonna be rude. I'm not gonna insist on my own way, right? I want, I want to be first. Yeah, this is what, the, what Jesus had to teach the disciples, right? Um, it's amazing when you read the uh, synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how often the disciples were fighting over who was the greatest. It's just ridiculous. I just can't believe these guys that were so full of themselves. And that's what they were arguing about constantly. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Jesus said, the greatest of all needs to be the servant of all. It, at one point, he took a little child and put him in, you know, before him. He said, you need to become like this little child if you want to uh, become great, genuinely great in the kingdom. Um, and of course, all of this pride and self-centeredness uh, originates from Satan, right? The God's adversary. Listen to, uh, there is a passage in Isaiah chapter 14, and the passage begins by talking about this pagan king, but then it shifts over, and you'll see what I'm saying, because I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to read uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, but the focus shifts from the king to who is inspiring and empowering the king, and that is uh, the devil, Okay. When political when politicians gain power, we have to realize that God is allowing it or bringing it about or Satan is empowering it. Makes us wonder about what's going on with uh, 
uh, Vladimir Putin right now, right? Listen to what it says. Isaiah eleven twelve. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. By the way, that's where we get the alternate name for Satan, which is, oh, there's several of them. But it begins with an L. You know what it is? Lucifer means light, okay? How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, that's the realm of the dead, to the reaches to the far reaches of the pit. So we see that pride and arrogance and uh, self-exaltation all originates from Satan. So by and large, as I said, we're not suffering from low self-esteem today. Many people think too much and too often about themselves and pursue their selfish passions and desires as gods. Even those who do not think highly of themselves are absorbed and obsessed with self. See, it's very interesting to me that there are those who certainly don't have high self-esteem, but are still self-absorbed. Friends, the problem is thinking about myself all the time. I need to turn away. Isn't it interesting? If I just stand here like this, I can't even see myself. You realize that? I can't even see myself right now. I can't see any part of me right now. All I can see is you. You don't know what you look like as well as other people know what you look like. That's why I tell people, you know, if I cut my hair, my beard, or this or that, I just say, well, what do you think? I don't have to look at me. You know, everybody was telling me that, that I needed to let my hair grow out. That's why I let my hair grow out so far. Okay, and then it started getting kind of unmanageable, and Kristen cuts my hair. Uh, lady that did our uh, children's ministry for years, and she's a stylist, and she's very good, by the way. Uh, if you don't have a stylist, right, you know, she'll come over and, and do it. And, uh, of course, you need to pay her. But, uh, but she comes to the church and does it for me. She's, she's wonderful. And so, uh, but she's like, oh, you know, I keep forgetting. I need to cut your hair. And I was like, yeah, I guess you do. So she cut my hair. Now, I cut the sides here this week. I'm sorry. I know it looks goofy. It's my fault. I cut my beard. And I was looking in the mirror, and I was like, well, that looks really short. Maybe I'll just trim it up. Oh, no. So I have like this little, you know, white wall right here. So then I went around and kind of tried to blend it in and all this other. And I thought, well, mullets are in right now. So maybe that's fine. <laughs> but the point is, you know, it's freeing not to pay attention to yourself so much. It really is freeing. Just let the Lord love you and let the Lord help you to help other people and love other people, okay? Um, not irritable or resentful. This is love. It's not irritable or resentful. Oh, well, this is something I struggle with. It's just, um, I think it's difficult to help other people and not see genuine appreciation for that. Right? Have you been there? Okay, there can be a tendency for people to take advantage of you Amen. when you help them. And so we have this, we have this saying, I, I don't want to be a doormat, right? 
But see, love is not irritable and it's not resentful. Now, if I'm really, really helping that person with a motivation of love, then I'm looking at whether what I am doing is actually helping them or sometimes what I may be doing is just excuse me, enabling them. Um, when I was younger, my dad was an alcoholic and uh, my mom, before they got divorced, got him, or I think she was trying to get him at least to go to AA. But there was, uh, there was a group for the uh, spouses and children of alcoholics, Al-Anon and Alateen. Have you heard of these? I don't even know if these groups are around these days. But they talked a lot about being an enabler, how oftentimes people become enablers for those who are addicted by providing them opportunity to carry on with that addiction. So if you have someone living in your home and they're not working and they have an addiction and you're providing a place and an opportunity for them to use what disposable income they have that they would otherwise be spending on rent on their addiction, you're enabling them and you're not really helping them after all. And so this is where the term tough love comes in because this is where I have to say, okay, in the end, what did Jesus say? Jesus said the golden rule, right? What's the golden rule? Treat other people the way you would have them treat you. Well, how would you have them treat you? Well, you would have them treat you in a way that doesn't cause you to become lazy and self-destructive, right? Sometimes we just have to do things that we don't want to do. You got to get out of bed. You got to go to work. Okay. You don't feel like it. You don't want to do it that day. Okay. Sometimes, you know, you don't want to come to church. You'd rather just hang out around the house or, you know, go and have brunch somewhere or whatever. But what is really good for you? And what's good for your children to see you doing? Are you following what I'm saying? This is, this is all bound together in one thing, okay? But I can become irritable and resentful when people don't respond the way that I would hope that they would respond. And, you know, I experienced this some years ago, and many of you in this room were here back then uh, when I was trying to reach out to a, a particular group of young people, uh, three boys, and they really, really got to a place where they very much took advantage of the kindness that I was offering them. And I won't get into details, certainly. But I mean, I really bent over backwards more with those kids than I have ever done with any other. And I've helped a lot of kids. And listen, kids just can take you for granted and you can feel upset about it. And that's just kind of the nature of the deal, right? They're not always grateful. Um, but this got ridiculous. I mean, it got to where I just, I told them, I said, I said this often in the final years that I was trying to help them. I said, you know, guys, I said, I love you, but I don't like you. I just, I was just honest with them. Oh, Pastor D. I said, no, I don't like being around you. I don't like it at all. And I said, if you can't act right, I'm just going to take you home. And I knew as soon as I take them home, they're just going to get into some trouble. But in the end, all I'm doing is enabling them. They're abusing grace and it's getting worse and worse and worse. So, man, when you're a helper, you're, you, you're in a position to help other people. You have to really watch what you're doing and whether or not that is actually benefiting that person. 
Is that in their best interest in accordance with the truth, right? The love rejoices in the truth. That's what we're, we're going to see here. Um, it, there it is. In fact, it's the next phrase we're going to look at. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So what I said earlier, love is ethical. Perhaps you've heard someone claim, uh, you know, I'd kill for her. I'd kill for him. Well, far from love, that statement expresses a different sentiment or relationship, perhaps a kind of misguided loyalty or even worship. Love will die for the beloved, but not kill for him. Did you hear that? Jesus died for us. He didn't kill for us. Muhammad killed for Allah. Jesus died for us. He died in our place. You want to hear something else? The Chinese Communist Party has seen fit to begin changing the Bible to be more in alignment with their views. So you all are familiar with the story of the adulterous woman, the woman caught in adultery, right? You remember that story? It's found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, I think. Um, And you've heard the story, perhaps uh, they were this group of religious leaders were dragging this woman uh, in front of Jesus and they threw her down and they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now they had to have been waiting for her if they caught her in the act, okay? And so they threw her down in front of Jesus and they said, the law says that we should stone such a woman. And it does, that's what the law said. Adultery resulted in both parties being executed by the community, and that was by stoning, okay? So, they asked Jesus, what do you say? And in this story, Jesus bends down on the ground and he writes on the ground. Then he looks up and he says, let the one of you who has no sin cast the first stone. And then the scripture says, beginning with the oldest, they walked away until the only person that was left with Jesus was the woman. And Jesus was writing on the ground, and he looked up at her, and he said, well, where are your accusers, woman? See, it took at least two people to accuse somebody. And they all recognized that they didn't have any sort of moral authority to accuse this woman because they were all sinners too. And she said, he said, is no one left to accuse you? And she said, no one, Lord. He said, then neither do I. No witness to accuse you now. Go your way and sin no more. Amazing story, isn't it? You know how the Chinese Communist Party changes it? They say that Jesus then picked up stones and killed her. Wow. This is the sickness of the world. Jesus died for us. That's love. Muhammad killed people for Allah. That's not love. That's militancy. That's pride. Okay? That's what we see happening today. Um, Love celebrates the truth. We're taught to speak the truth in love. Um, This is not difficult. Truth and love are companions since both are part of God's nature. The scripture says God is love. And whatever God speaks is truth. That's why truth is unchanging because God is unchanging. Right? So it would make sense that love celebrates the truth. Scripture says in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins, but this doesn't mean that love creates a fiction in order to do so. 
In order to genuinely forgive someone, you have to affirm that there is something to forgive. Listen to that. Forgiveness is not, oh, don't worry about it. It, It's nothing. That's not forgiveness. That's trying to turn away from the, the problem. Maybe that's trying to forget it. But you know what? That won't result in healing. Forgiveness is affirming that there is, in fact, a wrong that has been done. And then choosing not to do something to take vengeance upon it or continue to hold that person to account. You allow them to be held uh, to account with God. The scripture says, um, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Be kind to your enemy and it will be as heaping hot coals on his head. This is the apostle Paul in Romans, but he's quoting Proverbs, right? Jesus said, love your enemy. You know, I think that this is something that we need to get. And believe it or not, I know I I mentioned this in a sermon recently, and here I am bringing pop culture into this. But this is actually a lesson, or part of what I'm about to mention, is a lesson in the latest Batman movie, okay? The way it was advertised, I thought it was going to be ultra-violent, and of course it was somewhat violent. And I thought this is going to be the most rage-filled, hate-filled Batman ever. I am vengeance. You know, and you see in this, this you know, preview, he's just pounding this guy's face in or whatever. And if you saw what these guys were doing prior to Batman pounding his face in, you would probably say, well, he deserved to have his face pounded in, right? The, that's the point. But you know what? The, there is a moral to this recent Batman. And the moral is don't take vengeance. You and I are, are not to take vengeance. We're not to be the face of vengeance. Well, there's no God in the movie. But, you know, I was struck with this thought that oftentimes we're trying to be amateur judges and amateur policemen out there in the world. Right? Got to step up to somebody and say, hey, what did you say? What did you do? Somebody cuts me off in traffic and I want to just go zoom ahead of them and cut them off, right? I want to tell them how it is, how they did me wrong. You know what? That's not love. I'm going to trust that there is a real God in the real world. And I'm going to turn those people over to him. I have had conversations with people, with people in this room, and been so enraged at how this church has been wronged and how I've been wronged by certain people. I'll give an example. The IRS is an example. Okay. Obviously, a church doesn't have to pay taxes, but we have to file taxes and pay taxes on what we pay me. And so there are all these forms that you have to fill out, right? And I am a minister, so I've got a unique status, okay? And I've got volunteers that are doing this. And I noted that during several periods of time, one of those volunteers or the other um, was pregnant. (laughs) So, you know, less focused and less time to to do this great responsibility. But the IRS doesn't care if there's a box that's not checked. And that's what this amounts to, by the way. A box that was left unchecked. Then they're going to come after you. Randomly. And it is random. We just get these letters. Now, we don't anymore. We've, We've gotten a service that does this for us now. And they can handle all of it, right? So we don't have amateurs doing it. We have professionals doing it. 
but they have sent us letter after letter after letter after letter. And I'm not exaggerating from different time periods. And these ladies have to go back and they have to work through all of our records and prove, no, this is, this is, we paid, no, we paid, no, we paid. So in the middle of the pandemic, I'm talking while the shutdown was going on, I get a call from the IRS. And I thought it was a spoof, right? Because there were some IRS scams going on for a while. I've gotten calls, right? And trying to make you believe they're the IRS, but they're not. But, but I, I discovered that, th that this guy was. And I was rather frustrated that this guy was calling during this time period. And I said, sir, I said, we pay. I promise we pay. And he said, pastor, pastor, pastor. Long story short, our ladies spent hours and hours and hours and hours going through paperwork, trying to demonstrate that, of course, we had paid. And it gets down to a form with a box that wasn't checked. This guy didn't care, man. He made absolutely sure that they went after us. We did everything they said. We gave them our bank account numbers. We gave them our credit card numbers. They tried to ding us on our credit, and they stole money out of our bank account. They stole it. The IRS stole money out of our bank account. And it infuriates me so much at that man that I want to hold it against him personally. I want him to have to pay it back. But I have chosen to forgive him. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Brother man, pastor, 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 turns you over to Jesus. You have fun with that. All right. That's forgiveness. <laughs> Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Another translation has it. Love covers everything, which is in keeping with 1 Peter 4, 8. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? Love might seem easy to take advantage of or to a degree those who love will permit themselves to be taken advantage of if they see that it is truly to the advantage of the beloved. Listen, you do this with kids all the time, okay? Now, you don't want to let a kid just run over you and you get whatever they want because you're not helping them. But there are times when you're really too tired to be playing with this child. You've had a long day and the kid doesn't understand that and so you're down there playing with a four-year-old or whatever, okay? And, you know, so you're not acting selfishly. You might feel like, you know, <clears throat> you're being taken advantage of, but then you realize this is just a kid. They don't understand that, right? Um, we put up with everything. That's what bears all things. We put up with everything. I'm not going to put up with that. Love does. See, in the end, it's really just intelligence behind love. Is this really helping that person? Am I able to do it? Then I'll do it. If this is not really helping that person, if this is just going to enable them, then I'm not going to do it. If I'm going to enable them to get drunk, if I'm going to enable them to get high, if I'm going to enable them to continue to be lazy, if I'm going to enable them to continue to, uh, to cohabitate, with a boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or whatever, then that's, I'm not entering into that. I'm not going to do that, okay? That's not going to be helpful to them. I'm going to put up with everything. I'm going to hope, right? Because love comes from God and I know God loves me, then I'm going to be able to hope even when things seem hopeless. And I'm going to endure all things. I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm not going to give up, in other words, 
right? Um, and love never ends. When love is entered into, there comes into life a relationship against which the assaults of time are helpless and which transcends death. That's William Barclay. This is why, <clears throat> excuse me, love can believe, hope, and endure all things. I have complete confidence that love never fails. Love will succeed in the end, for God is love. Amen? Amen. Love's going to win in the end. We don't have to worry about everything falling apart and blowing up and, and, and things you know, getting, going from bad to worse, because even when it seems like things are going from bad to worse, and if you watch the news these days, we just leap from one catastrophe to another, don't we? It's just one drama after another. After I'm telling you, you'll stay more sane if you just stay off the news. It's like a crack pipe, right? It's like, what's the latest thing that I'm having to, to, to worry about right now? Oh, it's the pandemic. Oh, no, no more pandemic. Well, no, there might be another variant. And I, no, 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 it's over. Well, it's the war in Ukraine. The Russians are going to drop bombs on us. Listen, man, I grew up in the, the 60s and the 70s. We all thought the Russians were going to drop bombs on us. You know, welcome to being old. <laughs> it's all good. They haven't dropped the bomb yet. We're going to trust Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Eventually, all this stuff's going to pass away. It's temporary. It's what we have now. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Right? So, love, according to uh, a commentator, love is the basic attitude, excuse me, love is the basic attribute which alone confers worth. Wow. Not your knowledge, not your ability to speak in tongues or prophesy, but love. That's what confers worth. So you don't have to be super intelligent or super talented, super gifted. You just have to love. And anybody and everybody can love, right? Um, I have so many more notes here, but we've got to conclude this. Um, the, uh, the last statement in the chapter is, so faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. So these are eternal states, if you will. We perhaps could call them virtues. Having faith is a virtue. Having hope is a virtue. Love. But, but they're more than that. They're states of mind. They're really states of being. Faith. Trust. Right? Hope. That positive sense that everything is going to work out because God is going to work it out. But in the end, it's love. That is what is going to be the greatest of all. And so that's what we need to seek to be about the business of. And that's why I'm proud, as I say a lot these days, that the motto of Lifewell Church is live well, love well, life well. Let's learn how to love well. Let's learn to love one another. Let's learn to love God. Let's learn to love our neighbor. Let's learn to love our enemy. And we'll be what Jesus has called us to be. Amen? Thank you guys for joining us online. Hopefully some of you from some of these new services have joined us. And uh, those of you that are joining us on the podcast as well. God bless you and we'll speak with you again soon.